Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. As our beautiful one and only planet keeps deteriorating... Nuclear capsules are disappearing, wars are raging. We uh, need utopian thinking to um, try and come up with solutions. So today I have with me the two authors of a new utopian book titled Half-Earth Socialism. They are Troy Vitesi. He is an environmental historian and a Max Weber Fellow at the European University Institute, where he is affiliated with the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies. He studies the history of environmental econo- economics, energy, and animal life under capitalism. His writing has appeared in uh, Book Forum, New Left Review, The Guardian, N Plus One, and The Boston Review. Also with us for just the first half hour is Drew Pendergrass, a PhD student in environmental engineering at Harvard University. His current research uses satellite, aircraft, and surface observations of the environment to correct supercomputer models of the atmosphere. His environmental writing has been published in Harper's Magazine, The Guardian, Jacobin, and Current Affairs. And, and thank you guys for um, joining us today. Um, Troy, can you explain the title of the book, Half-Earth Socialism, what does that mean? Well, thanks, of course, for the invitation as well. Um, happy to be here. We, we called the book Half-Earth Socialism because we wanted to really center the idea that socialists and other activists should care about the sixth extinction because many people talk about climate change and you know, we could have easily called the book like you know, climate socialism or you know, Anthropocene, whatever. But I think people are not talking about the mass extinction event going on. And this is uh, a huge problem and it's as bad or perhaps even worse than uh, in climate change in some ways. Um, there's a chance that half of all species will go extinct by the end of the century and we should be doing something about it. And what you do is that you have to increase the amount of area that's protected. So the term half-Earth comes from this entomologist named E.O. Wilson, who died a few months ago. And he he found this relationship between the land area and biodiversity uh, for an ecosystem. So if you lose uh, a lot of territory, a lot of habitat, then you're gonna see uh, loss in biodiversity. And based on that relationship, he argued that if we increase the amount of protected 
area from a 10 or 15 percent of the world to half of the world, then we can stop this mass extinction event. So we think that uh, mainstream environmentalists are not able to actually achieve this goal and many other environmental goals within capitalism. So we're challenging uh, more progressive uh, and, and more radical thinkers to take up the challenge of, uh, of mass extinction uh, by putting the half-earth within their plans. So it, it, it's centering this idea of, of mass extinction. It also is bringing attention to the idea that we need to worry about land scarcity, as we don't have enough land for all the goals we want to achieve, be they you know, increasing the amount of protected areas, but also having enough land for renewable energy infrastructure and other, you know, and also agriculture. And then we have to also think about a, a new relationship with nature, where we have a more humble relationship, where we're giving more space to nature because we are de dependent on this incredible, you know, complex world that we cannot fully control. So these are th the three things we're trying to do with the title. Mm -hmm. And um, Drew, can you um, try to convey the first chapter, the 2047, which is, it, it's very, um, very dense, um, sounds sadly very correct. Um, let's see what you can do in a few minutes. Right, so we open the book with uh, a sort of plausible fiction of the next 40 years or so, next 30, 30 years or so, uh, where we, we basically talk about like sort of if we continue on the path we're on now, making some maybe even generous assumptions about uh, carbon taxes becoming more widespread than they are now, um, maybe electric cars are, are taken up at a, at a good clip, um, these sorts of things. Well, what might happen? And and we kind of have these scenarios of like increasing inequality around the world, where there might be the first trillionaire at the same time as the number of people in slums reaches the highest in history. We have um, uh, the advent of solar geoengineering. So the idea of solar geoengineering is that you would uh, fly a plane up into the stratosphere and spray something to cool the climate spray like sulfur particles um, that would block out part of the sun, reducing the temperature of the earth, um, which is um, a quite uh, controversial and risky proposition because we don't really know what would happen. Uh, it would likely destroy some ozone. Uh, it would change circulation patterns, so it might affect the monsoon. Uh, uh, it would make the sky white um, rather than blue or whiter rather than blue. Um, so all these effects, but the, the unknown effects, uh, and so we imagine that there would be some floods and disasters that would happen uh, that would not be addressed. So we, we imagine this sort of cascading um, set of, of disasters that leave people who are in the wealthy parts of the world sort of able to do their, their thing, but leads to increasing chaos everywhere else. Um, and so, but the book is not designed to be a, a, a depressing book. It's a utopian book, I think, which we'll talk about later. So this is, we do this in like the first five pages to be like, okay, this is why it matters that we do something. And then uh, we, from there, begin thinking about positive solutions, things we can do, politics we can organize, technology we can use, and, and marshalling all this um, to, to make a better world together. Yeah, and um, in that um, chapter, you um, you criticize the corporate governmental industrial complex, but also environmental organizations as we know them now. Um, Troy, talk about that, please. 
Well, as, as Drew was saying, that even if environmentalists succeed in achieving a lot of their goals, such as having more cap and trade programs for carbon or having uh, you know increased energy efficiency and having lots of electric cars and so forth. So this is a huge assumption where mainstream environmental uh, movements actually take power in lots of places to say the Green Party takes power in Germany or whatever it is. Even if that happens, it won't be enough. It won't add up to a real change. And I think this is where we have to differentiate between relative improvements versus absolute improvements. So it doesn't really matter if we uh, are destroying the world you know, less slowly or per every increment of GDP, it is uh, you know, slightly more efficient uh, environmentally if overall the whole thing is just getting bigger. So we have to seek absolute changes. We have to be able to give more land to nature preserves. We have to uh, decrease the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And we have to do this all you know, relatively quickly. And this will challenge uh, the powerful. This will challenge you know, corporations. This will challenge people who are making a lot of money with the current system. And we have to reckon with that. So even if things go very well for the environmental movement, they will still fail. And so we need a new politics. And that's why we're critical. And we're critical of the environmental movement for other reasons. I mean, for for example, um, they, they tend to be very anti-socialist. They think that these problems can be solved within, within capitalism, and they can't. And then there's problems with the conservationist movement as well, as in the groups that have tried to protect endangered species or set up nature preserves and all this have a very bad past where they've uh, cooperated with authoritarian regimes. They tend to be very Malthusian, where they think poor people and having more babies and all this is the ultimate problem. Um, they're, yeah, they're anti-socialist. They work with like Rhodesian mercenaries and really unsavory people and all this. And we need to make a broader coalition where every group in that coalition, be they feminists or animal liberationists or socialists or environmentalists, they each have to change and come up with a new vision that binds this group, but also can achieve a, a much better world. So we're critical of many, many groups in the book, but we're also trying to convince them uh, that they have to work together and, and, and imagine they have these new utopian futures. And, and you're critical also of scientists, and the two of you are scientists, if I understand correctly. Um, Drew, um, talk about that, please. Yeah, yeah, so I, I am, uh, I do, for my day job, I do climate science. Troy is actually a historian, but I, that's maybe a form of, of science. Maybe we can think of that. No, but Troy okay. Should, no, no. Um, <laughs> but I'm happy to, yeah, I'll, I'll speak about this because I spend my day like, you know, uh, looking at satellite observations of the atmosphere, running computer models, climate models, all these sorts of things. And scientists really have, um, and there, there are a few, there are a few things that we talk about in the book. One, one, uh, quote unquote, environmental solution that has been on offer and shows up a lot in the intergovernmental panel on climate change reports, all these big reports that make the news. Um, this, this solution called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is BECS is what it's called. It's a big word, but the idea is that you grow these plantations of tree monocultures, these massive plantations of trees. The trees take up carbon as they grow. You chop the tree down, you burn it for electricity. You capture the carbon released by the tree as it burns and bury it underground. The idea is that this is a net negative CO2 emissions uh, way of generating electricity. Um, and this shows up all over these models, um, these scientific models of like the future of the climate, these climate economy models. And the reason why it shows up is because it's a good way to make a big negative number show up in your model. 
Uh, and if you look at the amount of land that some of these models end up projecting is used for this totally untested energy source, it ends up being like, you know, uh, several India's worth of land being converted to these tree monoculture plantations to, to uh, suck up carbon. This is a completely implausible climate solution, right? Because one, it's not going to happen. Two, it would cause great human rights violations. It would affect biodiversity and do all these things. It would. Uh, it's not clear if it would even work at scale. Um, but it shows up in models because it's kind of a nice negative number that can show up. Um, and scientists who are divorced from action from reality, from movements that can do things might end up with like little artifacts showing up in their models that that don't do anything. Or they might end up endorsing a kind of a, a an anti-politics solution like solar geoengineering, where we, we don't try and change our society. We just fly a plane and spray some sulfur and change, you know, the little radiation input uh, to cool the climate. Of course, having many different impacts that might not show up in models because we don't know the atmosphere maybe well enough. So these are some of the things that we're trying to push scientists. We're trying to revive a, a history of radical science. Science has uh, many great scientists in the past have been uh, committed to progressive movements in one way or another. You know, Albert Einstein is one famous one, but there's many other uh, more politically engaged scientists as well. Um, we want to revive that and make science for change, like a more um, a more real part of our political landscape because it's not good enough to just run a model we want to actually do something mm -hmm. and um well drew since you have to leave us in um 10 minutes i'm going to stay with you for the next question which is it's coming a little earlier than it would have otherwise but um going into your vision and we'll talk more about that with troy after you leave us but um part of it is um planning you have a whole chapter about that and um it's organizing production and consumption without the market. And you give some examples. And uh, I'm told by both of you that you are the man to explain that. So um, it's I, 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 you know, as I read that, I think this is, well, shall I say very utopian. <laughs> Um, but you think it can happen. So tell us what uh, what the vision is. Um, give us an example or two and tell us why you think it can happen. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the question. Yeah, so the book, as I think has been suggested throughout the interview, is uh, we're explicitly placing it in the tradition of utopian literature. And we don't take utopias to be bad things. We we really um, are inspired by a long history in the 19th century of utopian movements. In fact, the origins of many progressive movements and socialist movements come out of these uh, sort of wacky characters, uh, these utopian socialist characters who are imagining new ways of working, new ways of laboring, new ways of existing together with one another, including uh, reforms on the relationships between men and women, all these uh, other things. And and we live with the heritage of their partial successes, things like no-fault divorce laws really kind of comes directly out of the, these movements, eight-hour workday. Many other demands come out of these these utopian movements, these movements calling for a totally new world. Um, so utopia is a good thing. Utopia, even if it is not realized in the form that it is proposed, opens our mind, opens up to demands, all these things. So um I don't necessarily think that our third chapter of the book will be realized, but I hope that it will provoke new questions and make people ask for more. So this caveat aside, I'll talk a little bit about what it is that we want. Um, 
So I mean, we've laid out some critiques. We say like, if uh, these kind of movements don't demand enough, then we'll get this future of sort of climate um, and environmental disasters and inequality. Um, scientists are maybe sometimes proposing these solutions that work on paper, but don't work, um, have any connections with like real movement demands. So what we offer is what we call this idea of a, a democracy of blueprints. The idea is that uh, it's modeled on this, this thinker named Otto Neurath, which I think Troy will be able to talk about later. But the idea is that uh, a true democracy is not just about voting. It's about having a meaningful say in how our economy works and how what the choices we make in reality. So we, we propose this idea of uh, many different blueprints for the future being on offer, where we're thinking about the trade-offs of many different possible futures. So there might be a future with more car use, and this would require corresponding infrastructure, corresponding spending plans, corresponding environmental costs, labor costs, or there might be a future with more public transportation, etc. And the idea is that we can't just de decide these things, uh, you know, one or the other, we have to think about the full consequences of each decision that we make as a society. It's sort of this holistic picture going forward of what we are allocating our resources, our labor, our time to, and what what future we're building. Um, so what we, what we do in this third chapter, in this planning chapter of the book, is uh, kind of outline how this utopia of blueprints, this, this democracy of blueprints might work in practice. And this is in contrast to the market. The market, no one is deciding anything, not even the people who run the companies. Uh, if I run a company now, I will produce X or Y, depending on whether or not it's going to be profitable for any or not. I'm making a decision, but the decision is constrained by something that is not produced by anyone. It's produced by an inhuman force, the market. And it leads us to be aware of like this environmental crisis, but being unable to do anything about it because we are we are controlled by this, this force, this blind force of the market. Whereas a democracy where we are maybe outlining like, here's what we would need to do to do the environment. It might require us to change something about our diet or about our um, the way we get to work or et cetera, or the way we work, um, but it would have these benefits. And the, that's really the only way to make a meaningful decision is to see the the benefits and costs together um, and and make this choice. So we have a lot of details about how this might actually be able to happen in the book. We we talk about um, uh, an example in uh, Chile uh, in the 1970s under Salvador Allende's uh, presidency. This was a movement that came to power and was pushing for a democratic, peaceful transition to a socialist economy. And by that, I mean a non-market economy. Um, and they developed this computer system uh, called Cybersyn. And the idea of Cybersyn is that uh, it would be a tool that would support um, decision makers and kind of being under, kind of being able to understand a very complex economy, the input and output of copper, which was a major good, all these different things, and be able to kind of see how the economy was functioning and make meaningful interventions. Um, and they were able to use this, this computer system to respond to crises on the ground, like a, a crisis of being unable to ship materials around. They were able to, in this uh, pre-digital age, uh, uh, allocate a very scarce trucks to keep the economy going. Um, so there are lots of these kind of examples in history that tell us that this sort of non-market possibility is, is at least physically, computationally, organizationally possible, even if politically, it's hard to see how we can get there right now. Um, I hope this answered your question and didn't go too off uh, on tangents.
<laughs> yeah, no, um, actually, if we had more time, I would <laughs> want to discuss it more. But in, in the few minutes that we still have with you, Drew, um, so, of course, the Allende government was overthrown by the CIA and the right wing in Chile. And that started a very long period of um, dictatorship, basically a mili- militaristic dictatorship. And so that's one issue that we need to consider. And the other one is that what you're talking about is, if I understand correctly, a world government. And there's all these conspiracy theories about, you know, there already is, according to these conspiracy theorists, a world government, the Jews are running the world, and... Um, So, I mean, the UN is part of that. So how how is it possible to get to even even thinking about a world government and and what would make it a benevolent government? Absolutely. Yeah, these are really good questions. And and the book raises lots of um, questions about making sure that things are democratic and 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 actually Good, as you say. I think that one thing that I really want to push for is that uh, 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 we are a planetary civilization. We affect the functioning of our Earth. Like every, our economy is meaningfully changing the, the very makeup of our planet. It is, it is heating it up. It is killing other species. We are a planetary civilization, but we do not have a planetary ability to govern ourselves. We are not a planetary, uh, you know, so ability, we're not able to regulate ourselves on a planetary scale, even if we have planetary implications. This is a disaster, right? So, and one thing that we're kind of pointing at in the book is that just because something is not maybe would have a lot of political difficulties right now, um, doesn't mean that it's not in some sense necessary, right? Like we are, we need to be able to govern ourselves at this scale. And we offer in our book ideas about how we might do that in ways that are democratic, that are able to give meaningful representation to everyone, not have one region dominate another, not have uh, one, uh, you know, these, these sort of anti-democratic disasters. But I think it's a, it's sort of our mission as a species, as a, as a society to be able to to govern ourselves on the scale at which we impact things. So um, reactionaries and all these all these other people will, will stand against it. But that I think the need for us to be able to, to govern ourselves is, is very present. And there are moments in the past, like after World War II, there was this moment of internationalism where it seemed possible that, you know, something like this, like the UN is sort of a utopian institution that's become toothless uh, over time, but maybe there might've been an alternate world where, it was not. And maybe it would be like a world parliament or the sort of body that we would need to respond to a global crisis like climate change, not the body that we have now. Um, So yeah, well, I think it's sort of scary to think that we need to govern ourselves at a planetary scale because there are risks in the same way that there are risks to forming a state in the first place, like, you know, the US. But having that level of coordination is also necessary. Um, So threading the needle is is challenging um, and maybe scary, but um, it's really important to talk about it. Yeah, I really appreciate the way you hold on to the utopian um, thread, if if you will. Um, 
while we talk about you know real world um, challenges and, and struggles and and what might seem impossible and so on and so forth but um, as we have to let you go drew Pendergrass PhD student in environmental engineering at Harvard University he his current research uses satellite aircraft and surface observations of the environment to correct supercomputer models of the atmosphere and that's it, it's interesting to me also So that um, the, the word correct here um, because those of us who are not scientists I think um, tend to leave it to scientists to um, take satellites and aircraft and surface observations of the environment which I'm not sure what that means and uh, say oh okay they know what they're doing um, but you are busy correcting uh, <laughs> What, what the observations are. So thank you, uh, Drew, for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, we are still here with the other author of the book, Half-Earth Socialism. He is Troy Vitesi, environmental historian, not a scientist, and a Max Weber fellow at the European University Institute, where he is affiliated with the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies. Uh, you can join the conversation, um, especially if you have your own utopia that you would like to share us, 608-256-2001, extension 9, or on social media, at Word Talk on Twitter, or a public affair on Facebook. So... Um, Troy, good to have you here. Um, we talked about one aspect of uh, your utopian world, but it is only one of them. Do you want to just share with us briefly what the others are, and then we can talk in more details about them? Sure. Now, I would say it was kind of nice to just relax and listen to Drew talk about the book. <laughs> and you, do look, you, you some, did look relaxed. Yeah, I'll do some work <laughs> as well. Um, And I, I think, you know, talking about these things, it seems, you know, ridiculous in a way, yeah, world government and all that. And I, I would counter, um, because my, my topic is, uh, from, from my own study, because this is like a fun book that Drew and I wrote, because we were dissatisfied with the existing state of uh, debate around environmental issues by the left and by the environmentalist movement, um, is that, No, I study neoliberals. So neoliberals were a very small group of marginalized intellectuals in the 1940s who didn't like you know, the, the welfare state. They didn't like Keynesianism and, and, and so forth. And they got together and they imagined a totally different world that was controlled by the market. And they believed that the market produced better information than, than anything else. And they... Once they came up with that philosophy, they could then start working on policies and organizing and setting up think tanks and getting their ideas out. And they were able to then dominate debates once the old system was in crisis in the 1970s. And they were able to take, it, able to take advantage of that and push their ideas and then change the world that we live in. Right? So I would say that although these ideas seem far-fetched, and I'm, I'm well aware that they are, if we're ever going to get out out of this crisis, we're going to need utopian thinking, right? We're going to need a totally different way of understanding the society that we should be living in, right? What's, what is that society that we actually want to replace this neoliberal, environmentally catastrophic society that we have? Otherwise, we'll just reconcile ourselves to, to losing forever. And I think 
you know, the left has been very good at losing lots of battles. But at some level, I think we could beat the other side, as in like the neoliberal conceit, like the neoliberal uh, philosophy is not a good one. They believe that this market produces such great information, but the market does not produce the information that we actually require to, to manage ourselves on a planetary level, as Drew was saying. So that's, that's the, the plea for, for uh, utopian thinking. And, and then I'll say one more thing about um, how utopian thinking operates. And we get this from the philosopher Drew mentioned, Otto Neurath. So Neurath was saying we need to have many different utopias and people will debate amongst these like total plans and then um, and then we will implement them. Um, so that's that's one way of governing ourselves. And uh, I think that's an important way to actually imagine what socialism is like in practice, right? And then the other part, the other utopian part of the book is our own version of that. Like, what is the total plan that Drew and I argue? So I think the one way to think about this problem is that there's three major issues, right? And we have population, we have biodiversity, and we have living standards, you know, the three things we have to care about. And at some level, you can only manage two of them well. And I, and I think there's different political tendencies, and they choose which two they want to maximize. So like a typical Marxist, you know, what we call a Promethean Marxist, they think, uh, you know, they don't care about Methuselahism, they think, you know, high population is fine. And they want to have high living standards for everyone, right? Um, but they don't care about nature. They think we can totally dominate nature. Then you have your typical Malthusian environmentalist, which has been like the, the heart of the, uh, the environmental movement for a long time. And even very famous people like Jane Goodall or you know uh, David Attenborough, they are still Malthusian where they say, well, there's too many people and that's the ultimate problem. Uh, they'll say, well, we, you know, we want to have you know, good living standards and we want to have a good environment, but we have to sacrifice the number of people, right? We have to bring the population down. And what we're generally doing is, is saying, you know, population, we don't want to engage in genocide, right? which some of these environmentalists have advocated in the past. Uh, you know, there's people like um, Paul Ehrlich that would say that they should stop sending food aid uh, when there's a famine, you know, in India or something like that, and let people starve to death. So it's a very horrible past for a lot of the environmental movement. Um, so we're, we're saying that this is a bad thing. This is what has separated environmentalists from the left and from anti-colonialists and from other progressive movements. And that's why the, the environmental movement has been so weak because of this Malthusian politics. So if we reject that, we have to say we, we want to have, you know, we're fine with, you know, 8 billion people, 10 billion people, whatever the number is. And we want to have uh, an environmental system and you know, a biosphere that actually functions. Then we might have to sacrifice goals of, a total abundance in this socialist utopia, right? And that translates to rewilding half the world, so creating the half earth, right? It takes up a huge amount of land. Uh, and we're going to have to uh, limit uh, energy use in the global north, especially to 2000 watts, which is much less than it is in the United States, for instance, but it's actually an improvement for the global south. Um, and then to actually achieve a lot of these things, you will need to have veganism, right? So if you have people who don't eat animals, then suddenly you have lots of space freed up from pasture and fodder crops and all that. So those are the three basic things that we talk about in the book um, and that will actually allow to have you know, uh, this half-earth, to have renewable energy, and to stabilize the biosphere. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, I I I um, definitely like the your basic thinking because um, I too um, have been appalled at um, some of the ways of thinking of some environmentalists, right? Um, but I still wonder. Um, we are eight billion people now. Um, and I don't want to kill any of them. I, in fact, you know, maybe we'll have time to talk about wars, which you don't actually mention, but but I think that's a very important thing, uh, both because they're so environmentally destructive and uh, because they're so much part of um, the way of thinking of the current political leadership in the world and in the United States, which is very important, and and the other more or less superpowers, right, Russia and um, China. Um, But let's start with, there are 8 billion people on Earth now. Um, if we are, if we do rewild half the planet, where where will everybody live? Especially concerning, co- considering that uh, climate change is going to continue, even if we take some serious, uh, radical, even steps to stop it. Um, there'll be all these places where um, desertification will not allow for growing food anymore. There'll be all these places that will be underwater. Um, what what do we do with eight billion people if half the planet is dedicated to other species? So right now we use half of available land uh, on Earth towards agriculture, and four fifths of that is used for livestock. So that's four billion hectares. That's like four United States, you know, land masses. Uh, so if we than actually eat you know, plants instead of eating animals, you suddenly have, you know, say, three and a half billion hectares of land available. And that gives you a lot of space, right? So again, if everyone were vegan, we only would need something like, you know, 10% or, you know, even if we, we have a large scale, you know, renewable energy um, projects, uh, if everyone were, were vegan, we actually could get by with a relatively small amount of the world, right? We only would need a 20 or 30% of it. And that's, that's a lot less than uh, what we're using right now, because this is why we're on track to, you know, kill half of the species that we're going to probably use up this like 90% of, of the world rather than, uh, and that will cause this, this mass extinction event. Um, so we actually don't need very much. And I think, you know, veganism has been a, a big problem for the book because people, when people review it, they just say, well, that's ridiculous. Right? Forget about it. And, <laughs> yes, yes. And I think the, what the advantages of these like, total plans of this form of economic democracy that we were talking about, where we can see, okay, what are we going to do with our, the resources that we have, right? It's like we can... Uh, you know, we want renewable energy or what's our carbon budget, what's the extinction rate we're happy with and all that. And then we can compare these plans and these different outcomes. Do we want nuclear? Do we want geoengineering? And then we should debate amongst ourselves, uh, you know, what is this total collection of economic activities and, and, and environmental activities that we're happy with? And I would say that 
you know, giving up meat is the easiest thing to do, as in, you know, technologically, it's not difficult. We can just eat beans, you know, like you don't need to invent or wait 30 years for fusion or something like this. That might, or probably will never work. Um, and then it's a relatively small part of uh, the population that works in this. It's, it's not worth that much. And it's also, you can shift over to it relatively quickly compared to, say, infrastructural changes like building up a, a new energy grid, having new transportation, building new housing. That takes decades. And like changing the food system can happen extremely fast. And again, I think you can compare these alternative futures to giving up meat. That's what we do at the beginning of the book, where it's like, no, we're saying you, you have to consider vegan socialism, right? Which sounds crazy, <laughs> but the alternative is crazier, right? The alternative is more pandemics, uh, solar radiation management and so forth. So we can, we can definitely have, you know, lots of people in this world. It's just a matter of what we, what we do with, uh, our living standards and what we eat and whether we're okay with actually lowering energy consumption uh, to, to a much lower level. So we actually don't need as much land for solar power, wind power and all that. But we, we have to look at these, these trade-offs. And Drew, he actually made a, something called a linear program, which is uh, an easy way to optimize a certain problem given various constraints. And he can you know, plug in numbers, which he does in the book, and you can say, you know, how many people there are, what are their living standards, what are they eating, what is the amount of land we want to protect, and therefore the extinction rate. And it will tell you immediately whether it's possible or not, given those constraints. And I think this is like a tool one would use for this kind of democratic uh, planning, where people would, would come up with the math by themselves, right, and look at these plans. And that would be a, a, one way to start. And... Um, so I, I think this is this is you know probably the best way uh, to to approach that problem because otherwise we, we just have these really dumb debates where we say okay I drive a Tesla or I'm a flexitarian and no one knows how much it adds up to anything right like what is what is actually the way we should live that is fair for for everyone right we have no idea and we need to uh, collectively decide what our interaction with nature should be. Mm-hmm. So um, I have to stay here for another moment um, and say, yeah, I, I drive a vault. I grow my own food. I um, produce very little trash. Um, I, my computer at home is 14 years old because I don't get rid of anything unless I have to because I don't want to add to the um, trash stream, especially the electronic one. Um, and so on and so forth. I'm pretty good, but I tried to go vegetarian twice and each time and I don't want to um, discuss you or whatever, but every time I ended up a week later with my whole being just thinking about a very red steak. Um, so... How about, and again, I don't want to be one of these environmentalists who just want to reduce stuff, but how about reducing consumption of meat? Would that, and I understand what you're saying, we don't really know the numbers unless we know them, but um, how about that? Because you, you, like you say, everybody who read the book um, 
critiqued that, um, I know that at least in the United States, this is not likely to happen. And actually, I think the rest of the world is eating more meat than it used to. So can we just reduce it and make a difference? Well, I would say people should come up with their own plan. Let's say uh, right now, an average American eats something like 100 kilograms of meat a year. And then you say, okay, we'll reduce it by half to 50 kilograms or something like that. And then I would say, we'll do the math, like how much land do people need for everyone to eat 50 kilograms? And maybe it's, it's still going to be like 3 billion hectares instead of instead of four, whatever the numbers add up to, because also the big difference if people are eating pork versus cattle and so forth. Or chicken. Uh, and, and then, sorry? Or chickens. And you know, let me ask you, if I grow chickens um, in my backyard, is that okay? I mean, this is, I mean, I want these to be the kind of debates that we're, we're having, right? We, I think the socialists and, and progressives should be talking about the animal question, right? As in, uh, you know, what, it, what, what, what do we owe animals, right? And how does this fit into the broader debate over climate change? Because we're, we're quite happy to say, oh, we want to, you know, totally decarbonize. We want to destroy these big evil companies like ExxonMobil or whatever it is. But we don't want to talk about meat, Right, and 18% of all greenhouse gas emissions are are from uh, from livestock. I mean, it's a, how do you decarbonize uh, agriculture if you still have a lot of meat production? Right. So you, this has to fit into your utopia as well, as in this will then have to be offset in some other way, or you have to go with geoengineering or whatever it is. And I would just say, like, how how does it? Add up, and also, what is the coalition that you're willing to build, right? So there was a book that came out called "How to Blow Up a Pipeline," and saying, "Well, we need to have more property uh, destruction, more sabotage, to really push the climate movement and uh, to become more radical and actually achieve some some change and kind of scare, you know, our overlord class." Uh, but they, you know, the author Andreas Mom doesn't talk about how the animal rights movement. It's probably the most like, ferocious movement when it comes to property destruction. Like, they're always breaking into things and you know, uh, you know, rescuing animals or attacking uh, people on, on hunts or attacking hunting lodges and all this. Like, they're quite radical people and quite useful allies, I would say. And we, we need to think about that politically. And then we need to think about pandemics, right? So if people are eating slightly less meat, we still have a really high risk of pandemics. So I would say like this... This, these are the trade-offs we should be we should be looking at when we say if we just reduce meat if people eat meat once a day instead of twice a day what is the what does that add up to what is that utopia that we want and the the point of the book is that there's always going to be a trade-off right if someone tells you oh we will just switch to electric and you can you know have your McMansion you can eat your steak that whatever you want I mean they're they're misleading you Right, we are the environmental crisis is extremely bad. I mean, we're in really bad shape. We're very far from where we need to be. We will need to make some drastic choices, regardless. There's going to be a cost to all these choices, regardless. And I would say giving up meat is a pretty harmless one, a pretty painless one. And and to the critics of the book, where they say, "Oh, this meat thing is a big deal, or veganism is impossible," I would say planning the world economy is going to be a lot harder than learning to like tofu. Right. I mean, to get actually get away from capitalism, to actually, you know, plan, uh, democratically plan, you know, uh, humanity's uh, total economic activity, that's going to be extremely hard. 
so I, 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 at some level, veganism is like the easy problem. Okay, and and I want to just quickly because we have only about ten minutes left, and and there's a lot more to talk about. But but you were saying that that would also help prevent pandemics, and I just want to clarify that what I believe you're talking about is the zoonotic um, diseases that come from uh, especially uh, mass production, the CAFOs and such. Um, correct. Well, there's a couple of things here. So I would remind people that diseases, like new zoonotic diseases, they don't happen just randomly every 100 years. It's not like, oh, Spanish flu happened 100 years ago, and now we have you know, COVID. It's just like a random event. This is a historical relationship between us and, and animals, and we have to look at it that way. So you know, humans do not have communicable, communicable diseases before animal domestication. So, uh, you know, before 10,000 years ago, there was no such thing like a cold or influenza and things like this. They did not exist. They only started once we started domesticating animals because it's hard for us to actually get a disease directly from a wild animal. We only can really do that with primates because we're so similar to each other. Otherwise, we need uh, this, you know, like an animal, like a companion species that's close to us that where the disease can jump over. Uh, if you also look at you know, Europe in 1492, where they had lots of disease, because there was a lot of animal domestication in Eurasia. And when they went to the Americas, uh, you had quite, you know, quite a large population. You had large cities and, and all this, but people didn't really have any uh, communicable diseases because they'd had very little animal domestication. That's why the disease transfer is pretty much one way, right? So I would, and then I would say that it's not just having factory farming. So when you have factory farming, Definitely, these places are quite dangerous and can start diseases, but you also need to feed all those animals, right? So you need to go and cut down more rainforest and turn that into you know, soybeans or whatever. And whenever we're increasing the interface between us and the rest of nature, the more dangerous it, it becomes, right? Um, you, know, you think about things like deforestation in Southeast Asia has fragmented this bat population and now they're living more in cities or they're living closer to people than they used to. Uh, and then they then you know, get, they, they give the disease to a horse and then suddenly you get menangle or, or hendra virus and all that. So we actually have seen a, an uptick in diseases since the 1970s and that has to do with expansion of factory farming, right? But again, uh, if you look at China, uh, you know, the government's been pushing you know, traditional agriculture out of business and they've been trying to focus on factory farming. So they're telling peasants to engage in exotic animal farming, right? To, to you know, re rear these uh, you know, uh, you know, pangolins or, I don't know, or civet cats and all this and then sell that to a market. That's an extremely dangerous alternative, right? And that's also a source of, of disease as well. So. We have to look at it in, in, in like a broader uh, framework, but definitely the more animals we eat, the more land we're taking up, the more chance we have of, of getting animals, of getting disease. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have um, a question for you from um, a uh, caller who did not want to stay on, uh, did, not, did not want to get on the air. Um, and this person is asking, how do you address racism and white supremacy in your utopia? Which I think is a very, very important question. And I will add to it. Um, 
movements, you know, fascistic movements and, and those who are um, anti-indigenous peoples who seem to be, to me, to be the, the best uh, protectors of our planet. Yeah, so, I mean, one should support indigenous rights just because that's the right thing to do, you know, regardless, one doesn't have to be utilitarian about it. Um, but there are also are those utilitarian reasons for people who need that. I mean, um, indigenous managed territories have higher biodiversity than conventional parks. Uh, they also sequester more carbon. So, I mean, we need, and obviously I'm Canadian, right? So indigenous people are a very powerful political force and environmentalists don't achieve anything without indigenous allies. So there's many good reasons um, to, to engage and have like, this broad coalition. But yeah, white supremacy is a huge problem, especially for the environmental movement. In the book, we talk about the history of conservation, where the, actually the idea for the half earth comes from this South African conservationist uh, and the foundation he set up in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, they were extremely racist. And this group that is now pushing the half earth idea um, called the Wild Foundation, and the campaign is called Nature Needs Half, you know, in some ways they're doing a lot of good work. But they also haven't addressed this past, right? They haven't said, yeah, the founder of our movement was this, you know, mystic Jungian who, yeah, hated black people, or whatever. We worked with Rhodesian mercenaries, you know, worked with the South African apartheid government. And I think there's going to be a reason why people of color won't trust environmentalists until they disavow uh, this Malthusian past. And it's kind of shocking, you know, how prevalent it is or how, how, um, close it is to the surface for a lot of environmental groups. Um, and we one has to have to confront that. So uh, that's another thing would be is to look to um, the global south for inspiration in terms of you know what are people actually doing environmentally in the book. We actually talk about Cuba quite a bit as one of the most sustainable countries in the world, has a huge amount of uh, biodiversity in the Caribbean. And then when people actually went off uh, petroleum in the 1990s because of this economic crisis, it kind of showed you what life would be like in, in, in some ways and such a society. So I think one can learn a lot from uh, the global south. And also I would say if the left is going to succeed anywhere, it's going to probably be in Latin America, right? And therefore we have to learn from our Latin American allies uh, to a great degree. But I think one has to really push this this anti-colonial attitude. And that comes with also being more critical of living standards in the United States itself, right? I mean, we can't imagine a world where everyone is going to live like a, a middle-class American. It's what we know. Americans also need to drastically lower some forms of their living standards, as in people need to live in passive homes. They need to rely on renewable energy. They can't drive as far or, you know, Maybe even rely on public transportation would be a lot better than than having uh, huge highways and, and all that. And nor can they eat all this meat. So it's not to say one has to have like a Spartan life, but I think one should be critical of this, you know, what people call an imperial mode of living that you see. Uh, especially when you compare the U.S. living standards to the rest of the world, we have to meet somewhere in the middle. Otherwise, we're just as bad as these Malthusians. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a very little time left, about two and a half minutes. And so I would like, and, and there's so much more to talk about, we could talk for another hour easily. Uh, but I would like to ask you to tell people also about your video game. And uh, if there's any time after that, you can just uh, offer your final words. 
Sure. So we made a, a video game, and it's available at play.half.earth. Or if you're a gamer, you can go on Steam and look for uh, Half Earth Socialism. And it's a free game, and you play as a planetary planner, and you're doing exactly what we were discussing before, where you don't, if you don't agree with you know, veganism and energy quotas and rewilding, we invite you to make your own utopia. So there's no restrictions on what you can do. You can even engage in Malthusian practices and see how stupid that is, as in it's very hard to reduce the human population. But, uh, and, or you can engage in geoengineering, or you can try nuclear power, whatever you want to do, the game will simulate it. And hopefully you can see connections between these different environmental problems um, and you can begin to think more seriously about what, what society would look like outside of this environmental crisis, outside of the society we live in now. Yes, but uh, it's been a really fun project to, to work with Drew on this. It's been an interdisciplinary project. We've learned a lot from each other. We've talked to activists and um, it's, been ha it's been nice to hear that some activists really, really like the book. Um, and we're trying to push you know, the left to think more seriously about what it means to to be a socialist, right? What does it mean? And also for environmentalists, you know, what does it mean to actually get out of the environmental crisis? We can't simply have defensive exercises. We can't simply just defend and react. We have to be positive and have our own proposals and our own long-term goals as well. Yeah. Well, um, I want to thank you for, um, you know, to start with for um, thinking in utopian ways and putting this book together. I also want to let people know that it has a lot of endnotes, which um, quote a lot of research. You didn't just uh, bring it from the air. You know what you're talking about, it seems. <laughs> so, we try to back it up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for that. Thanks for the book, um, Half Earth Socialism. I think, folks, that it is actually on sale right now on Verso, and, of course, the game at the... Play that half that earth and our guest was Troy Vitesse, an environmental historian and Max Weber fellow at the European University Institute. Thank you so much, Troy. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks so much for having me and you on the show. And thanks to Jade and Nate today and also to Patty. I realized uh, that I get into the habit um, during the time that we didn't have uh, people here answering the phone of uh, thanking only our producer and our engineer. Shame on me. Thank you, uh, Patty. I'm Estee Noor. We'll talk next week about uh, fascism with uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, one of the leading um, fascism researchers nowadays. Talk to you then. Bye-bye.